Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. We've made it to our third week in our three-week series concerning the identity of the Vine Church, um, the identity of the church in general. We've been seeking to answer the question, for what purpose do we exist? Why are we here? We use three words to answer this question. It's on the front of your bulletin. It's also right there, wherever our logo is, hopefully, um, is always a reminder. Those three words on the bottom, gospel, community, and mission. And we use three phrases to put those three words into action. We proclaim the gospel, we build each other up in community, and we send each other out on mission. We proclaim the gospel, we build each other up in community, and we send each other out on mission. Two weeks ago, we talked about the gospel. We'll talk about the gospel every week, anytime that we get together. But particularly, we talked about what the gospel was um, two weeks ago. We said that to understand the gospel is to understand God's call on your life in Jesus Christ. To understand the gospel is to understand God's call on your life in Jesus Christ. God has called you in the name of Jesus Christ. God has called me in the name of Jesus Christ. We looked at this in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We, in turn, call upon the name of the Lord. We commit ourselves to him. We love him. He is our new master. Sin and shame no longer own us or control us. We belong to God, who has shown himself to be gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We're able to call upon the name of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we cannot, and he died the death that we should have. Last week, we talked about community and building each other up in community. If indeed... We are rich in Christ through God's grace in Christ, then it is our aim to spend these riches of grace toward others. Being rich in grace received turns into being rich in grace given. We looked at verses 4 through 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 last week when we talked about that. Being rich in grace received turns into being rich in grace given. As we talked about what it takes to build each other up, We simply saw that it is the word of God and prayer that fundamentally builds us up in Christ. How did you receive God's grace? Through the word of God and prayer. How do you give grace? Through the word of God and prayer. Has a brother or sister frustrated you to no end? Earnestly pray God's grace for them. Show them grace. Gracefully speak to them God's word. How do we build each other up in community? through the reading and study of God's word, and through prayer. And this all should lead us then into our mission. Inevitably, when we are a people who proclaim the gospel to one another and build each other up in community, we will then send each other out on mission. But what is our mission? Our mission is to proclaim the gospel and build each other up in community. And it's just a circle that keeps repeating itself. This is a never-ending need for us. We always need the gospel, and we always need to be a people who build each other up. We always need to be sending each other out on mission to rinse and repeat. So as we look at mission more closely this morning, and specifically at the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want us to see the manner of the mission. 
how do we send each other out on mission? We're going to answer this in three particular ways. How do we send each other out on mission? With humility, intentionally, and independence on the Spirit. Dependence on the Spirit. With humility, intentionality, and dependence on the Spirit. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul preached to thousands of people. Paul performed numerous miracles. But did Paul always preach in the grand halls of his day? Did Paul always gather the largest crowd that he could? Sometimes he was thrust upon crowds. Sometimes he did preach in the halls like of Athens. But he didn't always do that. Did Paul always strut his knowledge and miracles before others? No. We can read in Acts 18 how the church in Corinth, these Corinthians, how this church started. Paul, as he often did in a new city when he was traveling on his missionary journeys, went to the synagogue every week and reasoned that the Christ was Jesus, seeking to persuade them to believe. The Jews had the Old Testament. They knew God, and they were waiting for this Messiah, the Christ, to come. And so what Paul did was he went to the synagogues, to these Jews, and he said, the Messiah, the Christ, is Jesus. But what happened was they would reject him. They'd reject him. They'd reject his message. They'd reject Christ. They'd reject Jesus. So Paul in Corinth, when he was rejected by the people of the synagogue, went to a house of a worshiper of God, which was actually next door to the synagogue, and there proclaimed the gospel to Gentiles. Since the Jews wouldn't listen, he proclaimed it to Gentiles, which are just non-Jews like us. The church at Corinth began not in the amphitheaters and grand halls of Corinth, not in the synagogues or the temples of Corinth. The church at Corinth began in a house. They were humble beginnings for a humble man in the midst of a proud city. The first aspect of our mission must be its humility. We too are to be humble servants with humble beginnings in the midst of a proud town, a proud region, a proud country. How is our mission to be carried out? In humility. Let's take a step back and understand how humility ties into what Paul has already written in chapter 1. Last week, in chapter 1, verse 5, we looked at how we are rich in Christ in all speech and all knowledge. Now, if you keep reading the rest of chapter 1, you'll notice how there's a seesaw happening, a, a comparison, a juxtaposition. The speech and knowledge that the world accepts and expects is not the speech and knowledge that God gives. The speech and knowledge that the world accepts and expects is not the speech and knowledge that God gives. Look with me at chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. And remember 
those two words, especially as we look at verse 20, speech and knowledge. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When Paul went to Corinth, he did not go and proclaim himself to be the wisest man. He didn't go as a master debater. Debates thousands of years ago, and maybe even 20 years ago, used to be a show of intellect, a show of knowledge, a show of wisdom, a show of rhetorical prowess. An ability to gather a following of people, to persuade people. Nowadays, debates are just people arguing and yelling at each other without much any substance or purpose. We all encountered this this past week again. Back in Paul's day, men would travel to different towns in order to display themselves, to display their intellect, to display their charisma, their charm, their ability to gather a crowd together. That's not how Paul went to Corinth. Paul was with the Corinthians in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Verse 3 of our text in chapter 2. But it wasn't weakness and fear and trembling before the great and mighty awesomeness of the Corinthians. The Corinthian Christians weren't awesome. He reminds them of this in verse 26 of chapter 1. Look at it. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When you put on display your power and your intellect and your superiority, people will become attracted to you. And that's why Paul didn't put his intellect or power or superiority on display for the Corinthians. Paul was not there to boast about himself. Paul was there to boast about Christ. Paul was there so that the power of God might be made known through the word of Christ. If our mission is carried out on the weight of our own intellect or power or social standing or cleverness, then the focus becomes us and stays on us. This undercuts the gospel that we are supposed to proclaim. But if we humbly present God's grace as something we have received in Christ and not earned ourselves, God then is exalted. It is because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That's the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians 1. Our mission begins, continues, and ends the whole span of it with humility. You did not purchase your life in Christ. You did not earn it. So why do you boast as if you did purchase it? Why do you boast as if you did earn it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? 
If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? If our mission is carried out in pride, it undercuts the gospel we proclaim. We can have a confidence about the gospel, but how often is confidence turned into pride? How often in our world does the knowledge we possess lead us to condemn those who disagree with us? And we can speak in generalities, but I want to bring this a little bit closer to home, and maybe just for me myself. What about you? What about me? How have we displayed pride? Theological intellect is one particular area, the one I'll mention this morning. It's that feeling when I know I'm right, and yet I don't allow love to intervene in my response toward others. Too often, I have an air of superiority because of theological training or theological knowledge. This other pastor is inferior because he hasn't been to seminary. This other Christian is second-rate because they have an improper view of some theological stance. This friend says he's a committed Christian but hasn't committed to a local church. This acquaintance says she's a Christian but can't explain the gospel. What pride has crept into your actions and your thoughts? Pride is hard. Where's the line between guarding theological truths and exalting in my rightness about those truths? The difference does not always come out in actions. Sometimes it is simply a thought. It's that slight sense of, man, that guy's just wrong. That woman just doesn't know what she's talking about. Instead of, God, how can I show grace toward him? God, please help me to love her like you love her. God, thank you for revealing yourself to me, a sinner. Thank you for the grace of granting me knowledge about Christ, about your spirit, about your word. Now please help me to be gracious in my words. Extend your grace to my friend. Extend your grace to my neighbor. Extend your grace to my coworker. Use me to be the bearer of your grace in their lives. Use the Spirit to guide me to know what to say and when to say it. Grant your servant boldness to love, to speak the truth, and to speak the truth in love. How do we send each other out on mission? With a humility that is intentional. Notice Paul's humility alongside his intentionality in verses 1 and 2 in our text in 1 Corinthians 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers... And sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, do you really think that the only thing Paul talked about was Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffee, dates at Starbucks, lunch at Pepper Mill. You think that's all he did all the time. The only thing that ever came out of his mouth was something about Jesus and Jesus being crucified. No, come on. That's not what Paul's saying. He means he made every concerted effort to seize the opportunities he had to proclaim the gospel. He was intentional. He was determined. He had his face set for this purpose. It was always on his heart it was always on his mind. It was always ready on the tip of his tongue. He took advantage of the opportunities that he was given by God. He made sure to do the one thing 
that he was there to do, to proclaim the gospel. Of this he was sure. He could look back and say, I know what I did. I proclaim the gospel to you. He spent a year and a half with these people in Corinth. 18 months. That's a lot of time to, to teach and to preach. I'm sure he got to know them. He, he was in the same trade as some other people was how he made a connection with another couple there in Corinth. I mean, certainly he's talking about making tents. He's, start, he's talking about the trade that he's in. He's using that as an opportunity to provide for himself, as an opportunity to meet new people, other people, to do work for people. All the while, he depended not on his wit, not on his humor, not on his stories, not on his training, not on his family, not on his religion, not on his practice as a tent maker. He relied upon the Spirit of God. Listen to how one commentator translates verses 4 and 5. My speech and my proclamation were not with enticing clever words, but by transparent proof brought home powerfully by the Holy Spirit, that your faith should not rest on human cleverness, but on God's power. My speech and my proclamation were not with enticing clever words, but by transparent proof brought home powerfully by the Holy Spirit, that your faith should not rest on human cleverness, but on God's power. So when we approach our neighbor and our friend and our coworker with the good news of Jesus, and the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified, we do so humbly and with the intention to see faith born. The chief end of evangelism, of living a life constantly on mission, is to see faith born in the hearts of men and women and children. But we, I, cannot produce faith in your heart. I can't produce faith in anyone's heart. They, you, cannot produce faith in your own heart. Only the Spirit can effectually call the heart to repentance and faith. I can speak words but they're daft and useless without God's Spirit working on the mind and heart of the recipient. Faith is truth partnered with trust, but it is only the Spirit of God using the Word of God that we can depend on to produce faith. If we are properly humble and intentional, then we will be dependent on the Spirit of God. We will implore people to respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. We can do this confidently because God's word will accomplish what he intends it to accomplish. Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 11. Listen to this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he might have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The Spirit of God 
will use the word of God to accomplish the purpose of God. If this then is true, that the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to accomplish the purpose of God, if that's true, then, and if we trust this to be true, then why not spend ourselves on a particular strategy? Let our particular strategy be the reading of God's Word and prayer. As a church, let's have our focus, our strategy, our intention to be reading God's Word with those around us and praying with them. If you get the opportunity to preach, then preach. But everyone, everyone at any time can read God's word. Everyone. Everyone at any time can pray. So grab that friend, ask them to read through a book of the Bible with you over the course of a few weeks. Read it with them. Study it. Figure out what God's saying. Pray for understanding. You don't need all the answers. You need to depend on the Spirit. You don't need all the answers. You just need to be intentional. You don't need all the answers. You need to be humble. When you marry the Word of God with the Spirit of God, you are then a part of the work of God. Jesus in the Gospels tells of the story of the sower. The Word of God, the Gospel, is the seed that the sower spreads on different types of fields. Paul picks up on this analogy in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, we plant the seed, we water the seed, but it's God who gives the growth. I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gives the growth, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's God who gives the growth. So we humbly and intentionally pray for the Spirit to work. We don't bust out the Ouija board, we don't cross our heart and hope to die, There ain't some magic formula that we've just got to figure out. Use God's word and prayer. If we don't use God's word and prayer, then one of two things are taking place. Either we depend on ourselves, we begin to depend on ourselves when it comes to evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel, or the second option is that the other party's faith depends on us instead of the spirit. We can have the wrong motives And the Spirit may still bring people to faith, to truth partnered with trust, but it would be in spite of us. And I don't want to be that person. I also don't want to be the person who had all the chances to proclaim the gospel in my relationships and never did. I'm sorry to say that I have failed more times in this than I care to admit. But God is faithful. His mercies are new every morning. Recognize where we have failed. And confess those to him, but trust in his grace for a new opportunity. And so we've gone through this quickly. We come to an end, and maybe it's too abrupt. We send each other out on mission in humility, with intentionality, all the while depending on the Spirit. And so I just want us to take a few minutes and spend some time praying. Pray with adoration to a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Pray for forgiveness and our complacency. Pray, confess our apathy and our weariness, our dependence on ourselves.
Pray with thanksgiving that God has called us by grace into his family through Christ. Pray earnestly that the Spirit would use us to proclaim the gospel boldly and that souls would be saved by the power of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. I do want to give us just time to pray. Pray silently. Pray out loud where you are. But spend some time praying. I think we would be remiss if I said that we need to be humble and depend on the Spirit if we didn't actually offer ourselves some time to do that. And so use the next couple minutes at least that we have this morning, set apart, set aside, to do just that, to pray. So I'm going to give you some minutes to pray. God, would you help us to be a people who are constant in prayer? A people who recognize that we depend on you for life and breath, for purpose. You are an amazing God. You have created all that we can see. You have shown yourself to be a God who is gracious and merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are faithful. Your faithfulness is great, God, and I pray that as we continue to worship you this morning, we continue to sing, continue to pray, that you would help us to recognize your goodness to recognize you are the only one who is good, that we have no good in and of ourselves. The only good that we have is Christ in us. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to remove the sin from our lives, put off our old selves, put off our old habits, put off our dependence on ourselves and put on Christ's righteousness, put on his love, put on the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. God, help us to be a people who are marked by this, who show grace to the people we encounter, who invite others into a relationship with you, who invite others to look at your word, who invite others to stop depending on themselves, to humble themselves before you, a holy and mighty God. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to understand and acknowledge the part that you have chosen for us to play. God, help us to be a people who are faithful. Help us to be a people who do care not just about ourselves, but the people who care about the proclamation of the gospel, about your glory and your honor, that we might boast in the Lord, that we might boast in you, that we might be a people who love Christ above all else. God, let this be what describes us, what defines us, what moves us, God, we need your spirit. 
to quicken our hearts and our minds. We need your spirit to do the work that only he can do. To see people come to faith. To see people trust you. To see people understand your truth. God, use us. We are your willing instruments. Would you be faithful? Would you hold up your end of what you have promised? That your word will accomplish much. That you do intend to save people. That you do care about your creation. God, please, would you do this in us? Do us through us this morning and the rest of this week. We pray in Jesus' name.